0: Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brain in the Day. I am Boomer. And we're doing a stripped-down version of the show today, just the two of us. A
1: little bit of a throwback.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the original Flavor Lanyap episodes. Um, I'm recording everything kind of out of sync right now. Uh, <laughs> it's it's been a kind of a jumbled week, so hopefully I have some brain power left for this conversation. I went on a trip to San Francisco and had a great time, but As a result, I've been like catching up on our normal, like, week to week routines. I didn't see a lot of movies since the last time we talked uh, because I've been busy recording and traveling and not looking at screens all the time, which is kind of interesting. Nice break.
1: Man, you missed out on all of the like sky is falling Twitter stuff.
0: <laughs> I did check in on that every now and then. I was like, what is everybody freaking out about? Oh wait, I don't have to care about this. They've been saying that it's over for 3 days in a row now. Um I don't have to do any investigating. <laughs> I also blocked yeah. Elon Musk on Twitter, so I never know exactly what thing people are freaking out about anymore. Um <laughs> I just like don't even hear the source of the panic at this point. Right. And that's been great for my brain too.
1: I bet. I bet.
0: Let's see on the plane I watched the rehearsal based on y'all's recommendations that i power through and watch that uh even though i didn't particularly care for nathan for you the few episodes i saw
1: oh yeah okay i liked it (laughs) whenever you you sang the rehearsal i'm like is that a movie that i recommended it wasn't until you said nathan for you that i was like oh yeah it's a show that we loved
0: it's almost movie length though it was like three hours total it was very plain watchable (laughs) in in that way i bet i still didn't find the like point and laugh at the freaks humor of it that funny Mm. i mostly just found it absolutely terrifying (laughs) like the uh the lengths he was going to like insert himself into people's like private lives was um terrifying in a very purposeful way the amusement i found in it was just like the uh blood chilling uh reveals of like how willing he was to sleep in someone's bed <laughs> or uh yeah
1: set up yeah.
0: like uh an artificial scenario for them to like fall in love with an actor <laughs> to get them yeah. to like perform the way he wanted to like that stuff was fascinating
1: yeah harrowing fascinating all of those things did you find it very poignant at the end or no
0: this stuff where he like accidentally bonded with a child was pretty heartbreaking like trying to undo that yeah uh or the kid just kept calling him daddy even though he uh, very much needed him to stop doing that. You know, it, it stopped being like, look how weird this person is. How unfathomable is it that someone exists in this post internet era with this brain? Like, yeah. It shifts from that to like him actually making like connections with these people.
1: Yeah. No, no, I think that that's what's interesting about it. I think, I think that the premise that's set out in that first episode is very different from what we end up seeing. And I think for it's, sure. Important to note that like that first episode was pre-COVID and then sort of like COVID forced it to be a much more stripped down one-on-one thing. I found the woman who was living in the house, Angela, very fascinating as someone who like I grew up in that kind of ideology and then escaped from it where she clearly um, experienced a lot of traumas in her life. And then that sort of thing that traumatized me gave her refuge and made her intolerable. But it gave her, like, some sort of healing. And so there was something interesting about that, even though it made her impossible to be around and intolerable. And once again, she kind of reminded me of my dad, where it's like, it's impossible to predict every little thing that they're going to think is evil or weird or <laughs> simple or of the devil. It's like, it's all in the mind, you know, it's all sort of made up.
0: That was funny when he started getting into actual, like, marriage bickering um exchanges with her where he was like why don't you go ahead and make me a list of everything that's satanic so i know not what what to not do (laughs) because right now i only found it after the (laughs) fact.
1: yeah one day i'm going to come home with a bag of oranges from the grocery store and you're going to say that's satanic too (laughs) how am i supposed to know hit really close to home um the ways that he thought of to prepare and rehearse and rehearse and sort of the like matryoshka doll like nesting way that each thing was stored where he rehearsed for his rehearsals with other people by, you know, sending, sending in fake gas attendants to check out the building and to check out the apartment. All of that is like terrifying and hilarious. And that's where I (laughs) always want to be. That's where I always want to be living is in that boundary.
0: Yeah. I I got a lot more out of it than I expected to, because especially after that first episode, it felt like, like you were saying, like they were setting up a different kind of paradigm and like a very episodic kind of thing. And instead he like really digs into that one relationship, which never stops being strange or artificial, but it definitely went further than just like point and laugh. So maybe I should go back and watch more Na- uh, Nathan for you as well. Cause I-, I remember that the irony on that show being a little more cruel to the subjects.
1: Yes. And no, I think that, We'll probably get into discussion of this a little bit later about how much a text is in on the joke that it's telling based on what we're talking about later. But I think that the person who's always being mocked the most on Nathan for you is Nathan. And I think that that's the only way that it comes. It avoids being too cruel, at least in my opinion, because like if it ever really if he ever mocked those people more than he was mocking himself, then I think it wouldn't work.
0: I'm convinced. I need to go back and watch more. I did make it to the theater one time since we last recorded. I went and saw Pinocchio, the Guillermo del Toro version that's um, going to be on Netflix in a few weeks.
1: Oh, yeah, okay.
0: It's currently making this like Oscar-qualifying theatrical run, currently playing at Britannia Canal Place in New Orleans. I saw it in San Francisco with a friend of mine from the internet, Sunil. Uh, we went... To take a hitchcock walking tour downtown
1: oh right how was yeah. that
0: it was cool like i mean it was mostly locations from vertigo with a little bit of the birds and um a movie called family plot
1: thrown in uh, but makes sense i love yeah. that one though but yeah
0: it was very vertigo heavy and the tour guide was very interesting um he had these all these like personal stories about his mother's love for hitchcock and his like subsequent ways of like uh trying to meet hitchcock and uh <laughs> tippy hedron and other people um he was, was an older guy it, it was very lovely and th- and then we ended the tour we got lunch together and then went to see um pinocchio on the big screen nice which i'm glad to have seen big and loud like i, I never enjoy something on netflix as much as i would have seen in the theater and this year has been like really intense on stop motion animation material like if that's your bag, which it is for us, uh, there's like more than enough to watch. Because, uh, you know, we already talked about Mad God, uh, Marcel yes. the Shell, The House.
1: Yes, I might watch Marcel the Shell tonight. Because I saw The House, obviously, and I, I acquired Marcel the Shell and just haven't watched it yet. So I'm very interested because every time I saw the trailer, I was like, there goes my heart.
0: I cried a lot watching that movie for sure.
1: I get the feeling I'm going to a lot as well.
0: Uh, and with the Del Toro Pinocchio, I don't know if you would like it or not, because part of the movie, like a large part of the movie, is about how obnoxious children are. <laughs> and it ends up being kind of a celebration of that. Uh, Geppetto has this perfect child who dies in a air bombing.
1: Oh, of course he does. Okay, I'm with yeah. it it's del toro that makes sense of
0: course there's a little devil's backbone oh the there's, pan's there's a
1: child part. that witnesses war right right <laughs> yeah okay i
0: guess even pacific rim is like that too huh
1: yeah and uh, pan's labyrinth yeah yeah all of them
0: so after that happens uh he's really sad and uh tilda swinton plays this like biblically accurate angel looking figure like she's got like a million eyes and like uh, all these different like animal body parts and stuff and uh she brings Pinocchio into the world as like a surrogate child to replace this, this one that's making Geppetto sad. And Pinocchio emerges from the afterlife uh, just like horrifically grotesque. He's got like a child's exuberance. So he's like super loudly happy about everything and super excited and like pipsqueaky, but Uh everyone else's reaction to him, even though all he does is, smile at the world with the biggest dumbest smile is they're all horrified by him like he's the most grotesque creature they've ever seen in in their lives so like uh he's kind of annoying on purpose and uh everyone else is treating him like you know like the nastiest monster del Toro's ever like seen on screen
1: okay and you know just
0: like the bizarre bodily contortions of his like puppet body just like don't move the way that a human boy's body's supposed to move and like he gets Drafted into the war to fight for Mussolini.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Also. Yeah.
0: The way it like eventually works out is like the movie celebrating his like chaotic, obnoxious, childlike behavior as like a counterpoint to the fascism of like Nazi era war. It's like a necessary rebellious attitude, uh, this like childlike exuberance. But I could also see the actual exuberance itself grating on you as an audience member so uh i don't know how much i would recommend it to you other than the animation looks gorgeous um i believe it was co-written by del toro and the guy who wrote um over the garden wall
1: oh i love that
0: so there's a lot of good jokes. right now (laughs) i'm having potatoes and molasses for dinner tonight
1: (laughs) have you did you ever have you had potatoes and molasses before like for real no, no. I found a recipe for them after watching the show that was pretty good. I'll send it to you.
0: Okay. I
1: would eat All that. Right. They were delicious.
0: <laughs> I actually have potatoes and molasses in my house right now. Like I guess I couldn't make that happen tonight.
1: The only other thing you need is salt.
0: <laughs> I have that too. Wow. Great. I'm most of the way there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't know how much interest you have in, in this movie, but uh it wasn't like essential. Like I'm not like, oh, you have to see this before the year is over and you start making your like best of the year list. Which is what it's vying for. Like it's one of Netflix's bigger plays for like Oscar nominations. And to me it was just like a pretty good Del Toro movie. I wanna say a step above Nightmare Alley, but like not really like anywhere near his best still.
1: I'm into you that. Know,
0: somewhere in the middle of his catalog.
1: I'm into it. I'm gonna have okay. to check that out. I might wait for Netflix. Fair enough. Because I'm, you know cheap. I can I can, <laughs> I'm cheap. Uh, that's true. Me I too. guess I don't need any other reasons. I am too. Well, speaking of Pinocchios that came out this year, this week I watched Robert Zemeckis's Death Becomes Her. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I think I've mentioned before, I had a friend who, you know, in October he said, I was at a bar and two TVs were playing two different movies. One of them was playing something about people on a raft and one of them had a woman with a hole in it. And I was like, that's, Creep Show and Death Becomes Her. And of course, we've already talked about how I misidentified Creep Show 2 as Creepshow. Show. And now I've watched both of those. But now we've also watched Death Becomes Her, which uh, I think is a delight. Oh, yeah. I love this movie. I always forget about it. It's been probably seven years since the last time I saw it. And it's funny because it was constantly on like Sci Fi Channel during October when I was young. It was a movie that I remember constant advertisements for in the same vein as Strange Days, where there are scenes in both of those movies that are like a second to two seconds long that were used in the commercials that came on constantly. And I feel like I've seen the movies more than I have because of it. Absolute delight. My best friend made black bean soup uh, with chorizo in it, and I made fried rice for our vegetarian friend. And we all watched it, and it was a fucking riot uh it's so funny it's so funny do you have any favorite moments from it when was the last time you saw it
0: i watched it last hurricane power outage which i believe was about a year ago All uh right. picturing isabella rossellini dressed as like theta Barra doing like a ritualistic dance i remember liking that a lot just the general cattiness especially towards the end when it really ramps up to like horror comedy is pretty good yeah I do get the movie mixed up with She-Devil a lot, which I think I like slightly prefer.
1: Oh, because we were talking about how we have to watch She-Devil now, because both of them have Meryl Streep really cutting loose in them.
0: Yes, yes. And that's kind of why I get them mixed up in my head.
1: Yeah, and she steals a husband in both as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And she devil. She's like the uh, romance writer and romance one.
1: novelist. Yeah.
0: Okay. What is she? What's her like occupation? She's in a
1: songbird. She's a faded actress. Oh, that's
0: right. Okay. Yeah. There's
1: the part. You know, it opens with her people walking out of her show in disgust, and then later when they take Goldie Hawn away because she hasn't paid her rent, and they take her off to a mental institution. She's watching a movie in which Meryl Streep's character as an actress gets strangled over and over again, and it's very funny. (laughs) Just eating, like, tubs of frosting out of the cabinet. All of her bookshelves are full of cats. Like, (laughs) there's just cats on every shelf. And instead of having the books on the shelves, they're stacked so that the cats have more access. You know? The opening credits are playing as Goldie Hawn opens a cabinet and there's a cat in there. And I laugh every time. It's just so many cats. So much cat food. I love how gaudy all of the horrible, hideous houses are in this movie. I don't think I ever really noticed or thought about that before. I guess it's been 30 years. Probably people don't know what this movie is, but Meryl Streep is a faded actress who's mousy childhood friend goldie hahn brings her plastic surgeon husband bruce willis with her to like meryl streep's latest premiere and uh bruce willis falls head over heels for meryl immediately and leaves goldie hahn who seven years later is living like a cat the crazy cat lady from the simpsons and is taken <laughs> away and then is, you know, goes to therapy, is is institutionalized, I guess. She doesn't go to therapy. At least, it's, at least she has some agency in what's happening. But they lock her up. <laughs> and then seven years after that, she's, like, beautiful, looks younger than ever before, gorgeous. While Meryl Streep, it's been 14 years, and even though she got, you know, great plastic surgery from the plastic surgeon to the stars, Bruce Willis, um, it's still been a while, and she's starting to fade or whatever. Um, And of course he's become an alcoholic and it's just a very bitchy movie about these two women who hate each other until that middle of the movie complication where there's a magic potion that keeps them young forever. And of course, as soon as Meryl Streep drinks it, Isabella Rossellini says now a warning and Meryl Streep's like (laughs) now a warning, which is one of my favorite reads. One of the reasons I wanted to watch this one is because my old roommate does not like Meryl Streep. He thinks that she's overrated as an actress. And I think that it, he says that he watched a supercut of her doing a lot of glasses acting, which I know that she does do. There's a lot of glasses acting in um,
0: Devil, Wears Prada. Devil Wears
1: Prada alone. Uh, but I think that he would really enjoy it if he actually got to see her cut loose like she does in this and in She-Devil. I think that he just thinks that she's like Sophie's Choice in Devil Wears Prada, and I understand his like um, hype backlash in that area, but I, I mean, she's been one.
0: told she's so great for so long that she doesn't really have to try very much anymore. You know, yeah. like, when's the last time she really took, like, a risky project?
1: Mama Mia, maybe. <laughs> is that risky? I mean, I well, guess she funny, sings. <laughs> what's, what's funny is my, my my roommate was like, oh, you know, Amanda Seyfried, I just watched her in something the other day. She, she should be Meryl Streep. And I was like, she is Meryl Streep in <laughs> Mama Mia. They're the same character in different times. I don't think that I won that argument, though.
0: <laughs> I hate Robert Zemeckis. Really, I fucking despise him.
1: <laughs> His entire filmography—it's real hit or miss. But
0: no, I like th- you know Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her. Maybe one or two more, but like what Back he cares about in filmmaking—I hate that movie.
1: <laughs> All three of them? Yeah. What They're about awful. Contact?
0: Contact's fine. It's okay. What about What Lies Beneath? Not a good movie, but I'm not, like, mad at it.
1: Okay, all right. I I did. I figured that you and I would be in agreement that, like, Forrest Gump is Forrest oh. Gump. It is it is what it is. I understand why people love that movie, but it just does not hold a lot of interest for me. Uh, my favorite, Back to the Futurist, two.
0: No, that movie's terrible. All right. All that happens in that movie is they revisit scenes from the earlier movie. I do love the, like, futuristic part of it where they're like at the Trump tower in the future. But I always remember, I always remember that being a larger part of what it is. Like most of the movie is them revisiting scenes from the first one.
1: Fair enough. I, I, I think I know what you're about to say, and I'm going to go ahead and preemptively agree
0: that like what he cares about in movies is like the least interesting part of movies. Like he's basically like a special effects like showcase guy. Like he's basically like on a convention room floor showing what you can do to other filmmakers with like the most expensive computers in Hollywood. And to me it's like bring a book. Like that's so fucking boring.
1: <laughs> well, uh again, I preemptively and retroactively agree. Uh I don't, I I have a higher opinion of his body of work when I look at his credits. I see a bunch of movies that I objectively completely agree with you about that. All he's doing is playing with the computers and uh, seeing what he can do. And for the most part, that didn't create art or interest. Um, The Polar Express is a punchline. Beowulf (laughs) holds no interest. That 2009 Christmas Carol, no interest in that at all. No interest in flight either.
0: Marwan calls practically a hate crime
1: welcome to marwin i haven't seen it i've been trying to find it i know that's a horrible thing to say but i actually have been trying to find that because of my curiosity about it i won't lie the
0: documentary is good uh i, I hope seen i never the see the documentary this
1: oh, okay. okay i like that one and then you know before that he mo- he made you know a bunch of- he made it a- the ultimate dad movie in Forrest Gump, and he made the back to the future movies which are very popular but you hate um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and i also like romancing the stone no not for me and death becomes her and contact is a delight to me so i don't know
0: i like contact i feel like anybody could have made it
1: oh i disagree actually
0: it has that zemeckis touch
1: <laughs> there are things in that movie that i think only he could have done with his particular eye i know that what you're saying is his particular eye is mostly geared towards special effects but like you know, there's that when you think about what are the great shots that people always talk about. They talk about that over the house shot in Tenebrae, and they talk about all the great wonders in the Hitchcock movies. And they talk about that Jenna Malone running up to the mirror and opening it and closing it as Jodie Foster. That's a great shot. That's one of the big ones of film. You know, when we talk about the magic, that's magic um what else did i watch oh i watched uh continuing with the cohen brothers watch i finally saw their 2010 remake of true grit which also i, I was was coming to mind earlier when you talking. we're talking about what you saw which um was about the horror of children because in general i think i mentioned before one of the things i really like about the cohen brothers is their utter lack of sentimentality when it comes to children Especially in like a simple man, but also in like many others. The even just the kids in um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou are kind of a horror. True Grid is the only time that they have like a child who's mostly present and she's great. I love her in this. I love a, you know, a child that's wise beyond their years and constantly talking and like highfalutin language it reminded me a lot of the vavitch which i also love kind of with that same temperament in a lot of ways have you seen this one
0: no but i saw the um the original one from the 60s and i liked it more than i thought i would because it's so western
1: it's pretty good for a western
0: but the kid is what won me over too like i still quote her in um a scene where i, I believe someone falls in a well or something she's like he's in a bad way yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something bad happens to me i say i'm in a bad way
1: yeah yeah
0: that's a very like particular way of talking and like I've, uh, in a way i could see the cohen brothers like latching on to
1: oh yeah would that it were right um they love that i love it when they love it they make me love it i really enjoyed it uh jeff bridges was a delight in it i really enjoyed him as rooster Cogburn. You know, he really is gritty in it. I don't, I know that that's almost the title of the movie and it sounds goofy to say, but I really, really enjoyed it. It is Thanksgiving this week when this comes out. If you're out there in listener land and you have like a family member who's really offended and a snowflake about bad language, like hell and damn then True Grit is a movie that you can watch with that relative and they'll be <laughs> mighty pleased because there's not a lot of it. It's used very sparingly throughout while still be in a feeling way. very authentic. You'll be in a good way. You won't be <laughs> falling into any any pits, chasms. I will say that immediately after that, um, we watched that at my neighbor and friend's house and my friends who were visiting came over to watch uh, or to to hang out after she was going to bed and we were just flipping through the channels and landed on Gods of Egypt, which I've seen before. And it's awful, and it's still awful. I just wanted to remind everyone, it's still one of the worst things I've ever seen. It's almost bad enough to be fun.
0: I saw that one in the theater.
1: Do you remember anything about it?
0: Uh, I remember a guy from Game of Thrones was in it, and I remember I hated it.
1: Yeah. um, <laughs> Jamie Lannister is in it as... Osiris, I think, or maybe Osiris is Gerard Butler and he's the one who's trying to destroy the world. Maybe he's ha. I don't know. Not ha. Not the half, I mean. Not the planet from Star Wars, but half, the, the Egyptian god. Um, yeah, still terrible. It's very inconsistent in like how much bigger Jamie Lannister is supposed to be than Britain Thwaites which is kind of the reason that I always end up watching at least a part of this movie when it's on television. I love to see Brenton Thwaites on my television screen, whether it's Oculus or Titans or this, I'm always just like, Oh, Brenton Thwaites is on TV time to like do, drop whatever I'm doing for as long as I can look. Sometimes he only comes up to Jamie Lannister's waist. Sometimes it looks like he's a foot taller or shorter than that. I, understand sort of the desire to make something like this but you really shouldn't have especially when like the last movie you made that anybody cared about was dark city and not a lot of people cared about it at that
0: oh that's what i remember too is he went what's his name alex proyas he had like a, a huge meltdown online after the reviews for gods of egypt were really bad yeah he just like went on a huge rant and like kind of tanked his own career
1: the thing is rightfully so you know it's not very good and i say that as someone who likes dark city you know understands the crow and i don't even hate that iRobot movie that he made but this movie is bad It's, (laughs) it's so bad you know things don't make any sense there's this horribly long subplot which was less present than i remembered but still present where the lead like brenton thwaites's girlfriend is in the afterlife and she's like waiting in a line for a really long time to watch her soul get weighed so that's the ticking clock in this movie and then like jeffrey rush is the sun god and at one point they have to like get on his spaceship chariot and shoot at like the um sandworm of, of night with its big leech mouth
0: that sounds cool
1: it's something <laughs> it's something all right i i don't know chadwick boseman is in it and you just feel bad the whole time because you're like what why did they do this to you how is this allowed to happen so anyway just a quick reminder here in the middle of all of this that uh gods of egypt is terrible and uh, you should never see it
0: and apparently cheap to license for television
1: yeah because that's i see it on tv all the time and i don't even i just have any time
0: the experience of wanting to know someone
1: but not being able to no some people have this mystery about them that you can't get out of your head do you know what i mean no dear sounds terrible happy thanksgiving out there in listener land uh even though i think thanksgiving is a ridiculous holiday and i don't understand why we celebrate it we do and we often celebrate it alongside pumpkins you know it's the second uh, most popular pumpkin holiday, I think, <laughs> uh, after Halloween, and right after because it's you know that time of year. So I, I don't really know exactly how to jump straight into the. We've talked about this movie very briefly the first time I saw it, and I talked about what I had been watching. This movie is about a woman who's in a sorority, who has her vapidity challenged when she falls in love with a mentally handicapped athlete who she is supposed to be coaching for uh, something that is similar to but legally distinct from the Special Olympics. Christina Ricci is Carolyn McDuffie. She's the best sister of AOPI, Alpha Omega Pi fraternity. And yeah, one day, despite her many prejudices, which we learned where they come from, her family is worse than she is in every single way. Uh, In the most delightfully, hilarious way, Um, she meets a man nicknamed Pumpkin, and uh, she falls in love with him, and she just can't help it. And so, in many ways, this movie is like a parody of every movie that you've ever seen, like every romantic drama where two people from different worlds are forbidden from being together, except that it's a comedy, and the thing that's keeping them apart Society wants to keep them apart because, you know, he's mentally challenged, but maybe she is too, or at least maybe she's just emotionally challenged. And it plays it completely straight. There's never a moment the whole time where the movie winks at you or turns away. And I think that that's the key to its success. But first, I have to hear what are your opening thoughts on this, Brandon? Because I wasn't sure about bringing this to The Midnight Society because of um, (laughs) it being a movie that has a premise that's very alienating. You could have told me that you thought this was the most offensive movie I had ever mentioned to you. And I wouldn't be able to say that you were wrong because it would be perfectly appropriate to interpret it that way.
0: I'd say like even on paper or like watching the marketing material, like watching the trailer, it sounds super offensive. The, The trailer in particular, like, plays jokes in a way that the movie itself does not. Like a uh, pumpkin will like throw a discus yes. off camera and the trailer will like add like boing crash like cat howl sounds. Uh you know, making a joke out of him in a way that the movie never does. Yes. To me, the reason it works, and I do think it works, is because he is such like a blank slate character. Where like even yeah. though he is the center of all the controversy, he's the title he is pretty quiet and stoic like he's trying to say stuff but like he doesn't get to express himself very often and that blank slate allows all these other characters to project their worst qualities onto him and thus all the like all the jokes are at their expense like it's all about how uptight and closed-minded and like hypocritical everyone is uh in the way that they have to deal with pumpkin
1: yeah, the film never makes fun of pumpkin, and I think that that's the important thing. There are a couple of scenes that do cross the line on this viewing, where I was like, mm, "I don't like love the way that they're using this particular word this much in this scene." I understand the point of it, but it does read a little bit differently twenty years later. But
0: the slur
1: the R-slur.
0: When they use it though, it doesn't never seems like the movie's condoning the use of it. Like her, uh, it her boyfriend. You know, initially seems to be much kinder and like open-minded about pumpkin, um, until, you know, he actually has to like see pumpkin as an equal human being, and then he brings out that slur, you know, like that. Then he like uses it as a weapon.
1: Yes, I think the the only two scenes where I think it gets a little goes a little too far are the scene where she is meeting with the on-campus doctor, Mm. and the scene after he loses. The, after Kent loses the tennis tournament when the other guys in the locker room are using the slur a little too much.
0: You think the, you're supposed to like take delight in that as an audience?
1: I think that it's insufficiently critical in just those two scenes. Okay. Because of the way that it's being used by a medical professional in the first one. especially. But he's
0: so useless. <laughs> he yeah. has nothing useful to say.
1: <laughs> his, his advice is ground yourself in reality a little more and then maybe your fantasies will, will, the fog will lift.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Him like shuffling around his sad little office, looking for like pre-written material he can quote, instead of actually like engaging with her. Um, I guess, I guess the reason that neither of those scenes bother me is because I thought so low of all of the characters in the movie, <laughs> yeah. except for Christina Ricci and pumpkin, like every single character. I mean, even her at the, at first are like truly awful people
1: yeah (laughs) she she has the potential to be better and becomes better but for the most part everyone in this society is a real piece of shit including pumpkin's mom including pumpkin's mom that's the thing is there's like two movies that are happening here right and they're both like lifetime or you know inspirational movie after school special yeah you've got you know sorority girl outcast by her sisters because she's dating someone outside of her social circle for X, Y, Z reason, which we've all seen that movie a thousand times. I remember even a few years ago, there was a new one coming out with like Alex Pettifer, where it was like, she's rich and he's poor. And it's like, yeah, we've all seen that movie a thousand times.
0: Unless you're 12.
1: Yeah. And it goes through such a, the stations of the canon in that film of like, This happens, and then this happens as a result, and then plot point C, and then resolution. So that movie is happening here. But also, there's an inspirational, like magic, you know, oh, uh, this person overcomes their physical disabilities because of love movie, which is horrible and cliche and dumb. But also, pairing it in this movie, and then when they meet, sort of welding those two edges with horror tropes, at least at first, makes it very funny. Like, I watched this with Kat, and I was laughing so much really early on, and she's like, what's so funny? And it's particularly the scene where the buses start to arrive. And I think that one of the dangers of this movie, and why I didn't want to talk about it really in previous instances, is that there are parts of this movie that if someone caught you laughing at out of context, They would think you were a horrible person. Right, right. And, you know, the way that the scene where Pumpkin and his cohort first arrive at the campus is shot so funny to me. The girls are there and they're waiting. And then this sort of like horror music starts to play. And then the short buses arrive and the people are, you know, the people get off. And, you know, Pumpkin is in a wheelchair. But the camera uses that opportunity to shoot sort of from like, naval height. So you're looking, like, through this almost zombie-like body of people towards the what the language of the film is telling you are their victims. But really, it's just that these people, these women in this sorority, they need the world to be so beautiful and perfect, and that's sort of, like, part of the three-line of the film, that What's really happening here is just like one group of people is helping another group of disadvantaged people, but the music and the like composition make it feel like Hannibal Lecter is arriving,
0: or Todd Browning's Freaks or something.
1: Yeah, and they—they're all actors too, mostly attractive ones. Like if you look at Hank Harris, he's a good-looking guy.
0: I definitely recognized uh, one of his friends um, from the Mighty Ducks movies too. Yes, (laughs) that was like a child actor, I guess had a hard time fitting in later in his career because he doesn't get any lines in this he doesn't
1: no although there there are stars in this movie which i think we should point out amy adams amy adams melissa mccarthy yep um
0: is that where it stops (laughs) besides christina ricci i mean
1: yeah christina ricci
0: her boyfriend looks like he could have been famous uh, but he's, like, almost so handsome, it's grotesque. He's got that, like, handsome Squidward facial structure. Yeah. like He's got, like, a thousand-pound chin. Yeah. I was very curious about that guy's career.
1: Also, Dominique Swain is in this, who is her roommate, who was in a bunch of things that I really enjoyed, like, sort of around this time, as well as Marissa Coughlin. But they're both, like, people that you would look at and say, oh, I know her. But you wouldn't say, oh, that's a star. I mean, right. Dominique Swain did play Lolita in the um, Adrienne Lynn 97 Lolita. So, I mean, that's that's a big role that was just a few years before this. But she hasn't really done anything that major when the, within the past few years. And then Marissa Coughlin, I know her very well from Teaching Mrs. Tingle and Super <laughs> Troopers.
0: Oh, yeah. And she's also in Freddy Got Fingered.
1: Yeah. And she's great in this as the sorority president. I really buy her complete and utter just like devotion and interest to actually winning this sorority off. SOY? Yeah. SOI.
0: SOY. It's a sorority of the year.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Amy Adams was interesting to me because the only other movie I know that she's in around this time is uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Which I think is a pretty comparable movie in terms of tone, um, just like yes. letting people in this like sort of beauty and perfection obsessed world be really ugly to anyone who doesn't fit into that little squared box they're looking for. Yeah, the difference I think is like the worst joke in *Drop Dead Gorgeous* is Will Sasso's disabled character, uh, and this movie finds a way to make that joke work by like making it not about him and making it about how they treat him. Yeah. It's pretty simpatico, I think, with that other movie she happens to be in. Not that she has a big role in either film, but that was an interesting connection. And obviously, both movies owe a lot to Heather's, which we talk about all the time. Yeah, uh, any, every chance we get. <laughs> and I, I think Heather's is an interesting counterpoint to this too, because like when we talk about Heather's, we're always like saying what other movies do or don't get right <laughs> when they copy Heather's. Yeah. And I think what makes this one interesting is that, like, it gets one of the hardest things to get right about Heather's, which is, like, the sort of dreamlike quality of it. And just how bizarre um, and, like, almost half awake it feels. Especially the scenes where she's having lunch with her mother at the country club or um, going back home in disgrace after everyone found out that she had sex with Pumpkin. Like, those are pretty much lifted straight out of the I don't patronize bunny rabbits parental talks in heathers as well yeah and i think that's a really hard tone to strike and, and this one makes this one feels dreamy and like kind of loose in a in this similar way
1: cat and i were watching it and she was like this movie's tone is very confusing and it is i think <laughs> it is i think nothing really demonstrates that as perfectly as after after pumpkin and kent fight at the formal and ken Kent gets in his car and he drives away and he drives off of the <laughs>
0: oh my god that it's was hilarious
1: massive murderous fireball that he
0: explodes the second he hits the rail to go off the side of the cliff
1: <laughs> the car blows up twice on the way down in a way that no one could survive and then she goes to the hospital and he's like fine he's, he's got like... no
0: casts he's got a little tube of for oxygen in his nose and he's like i'll yeah. never play tennis again
1: <laughs> no burns <laughs> He's, you know, sort of the gag that you expect is that if he did survive, he's going to be like wrapped like a mummy and in traction, (laughs) but he's just lying there as handsome as he's ever been. He's like, I might, I might not walk again, but otherwise untouched, unblemished by this fiery ball of death. And that really tells you everything that you need to know about this movie and its tone. It's, you know, it'll go all over the place. One of my other favorite gags is... (laughs) Because when pumpkin's gonna steal his mother's car. I love this movie. I'm sorry, I'm laughing too much. But when he's gonna steal his mother's car and he like backs up and just completely destroys all of those planters, and you then can't he, do you it. know he shifts into you know drive and you expect, oh he's just he's gonna drive away, he's gonna figure it out. But no, then he just crashes into another pile of terracotta planters. And then instead of trying to reverse, he just keeps like the gas. And it's it's so funny. There's a language that this movie is speaking, but it's speaking it it's like it's just telling jokes in that language because it's in many ways like a mockery of the same sort of like melodramas that uh Polyester is making fun of.
0: Yeah, but like maybe from a later period? Like it's yeah. like making fun of 70s ones instead of 50s ones? Yeah. And but yeah, there are like specific scenes that almost feel like direct parodies of stuff. Like when Christina Ricci's character tries to kill herself, (laughs) it it switches to this like very pallid, um, like almost like televised PSA from the '90s, and it's like, are you making fun of a very specific commercial that I'm not remembering?
1: It just feels very general to me. Okay, I, I shouldn't. I mean, you said. You said suicide and I laughed and people it is listening funny, to though. those who don't know what, what this movie is about are like, I'm never listening to this podcast again. <laughs> Next they'll be making fun of cancer. But no, it's that she she does consume everything, every over-the-counter medicine in her right. medicine cabinet up to and including like squirting uh, contact fluids into her mouth
0: and then she wakes up fine uh (laughs)
1: fine well that's because she drank the entire bottle of Pepto-Bismol at the end (laughs) that's very
0: Jerry Blank behavior
1: oh my god that's what this is that's why this movie feels so right and why it's so funny is that this is a movie about a pretty Jerry Blank
0: and in that one they are mocking specifically like 70s after-school specials um that we've never seen (laughs) but uh I never got those reference points either and I I think that might be my favorite television show of all time. So uh <laughs> maybe it doesn't really matter exactly yeah. what they're mocking like you said like it there's enough general stuff like that that you you understand visually why it's funny before anything happens. Like as soon as it cut to that scene where she wanted to kill herself in the bathroom and the color like temperature changed, I started laughing immediately. Yeah. It's like, "Oh, I know exactly where this is going." The melodrama of this is very familiar in a very cheap TV commercial way. Uh, one of my favorite
1: exchanges in the whole movie comes right after too. It's when her sorority sisters and Kent have shown up at the house and the president says the or No, it's, um, it's Ann Chung who says, uh, the university has promised there won't be any reimpressions because of the, the, what you did. And then the university president's <laughs> like, yeah, we're going to make sure nothing happens because of the, um, the, uh, what you did i i use that quote all the time like i you know i saw this movie for the first time nine months ago i probably said that i don't know 50 times because it the, the what you did it's so funny but yeah i mean the, the stations of the canon that this movie goes through it's there's a very common almost dead horse plot happening here a girl from a rich family goes to a sorority where everything is nice and lovely and perfect and she has no conflict in her life other than the fact that her entire social circle is full of people who are prejudiced. She meets a person from a different world than her own. Everyone in her social circle makes her feel bad about it she tries to deny her feelings. She ultimately falls in love. It costs her her social standing, but she still loves him no matter what. The people try to get her back involved with her old social life, you know, and her level in society. But ultimately, she can't deny the love that she feels. Um, And there's a, you know, a big conflict at a dance. And then They get to be together. That's what this movie is at its core. You've seen that movie a thousand times. You've seen this used as like a story about like race relations for better and for ill and movies that are good and bad. You know, you've seen it used for rich and poor. You've seen it used a thousand times. It's just that you know everything that's going to happen. And because it knows that you know that just by making a scene a little bit longer or adding something just a little bit different, And changing who the person is that she falls in love with, it really turns it into this hilarious thing.
0: I will say, if I have to like lob one complaint at it, it's that by playing it straight in that way and like following that exact formula, it it maybe is a little too long for a comedy. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's a very long movie uh, for what it is, but that doesn't mean I wasn't laughing the whole time. Like, I was still finding jokes funny towards the end i think even one of my biggest laughs is when her poetry teacher tries to convince her not to leave campus (laughs) because she's one of his best students and she's like i've never finished a poem yeah Uh, and then as she's driving off he falls to his knees like just collapses in despair (laughs) that that got a big laugh out of me
1: i love i love her i'll transfer to community college (laughs) you can't transfer you have too many units then I'll go to Long Beach Tech, and then like Long Beach Tech, she we never even see her at school, and we only see it through the lens of her new living situation, which is in a house full of hippies, yeah. where they're eating dry lentils and everybody gets one carrot for dinner, and they're all gathered in the common room while she's working on her poem, and people are like tanning leather and making belts. It's such. It's such bohemian hippie nonsense that she finds herself in, and they, they have to try and very awkwardly be polite and be like, "Oh, Carolyn, what, what are you doing?" Uh, I'm writing a poem. It's uh, <laughs> I. She walks into that gate, and there are chickens in the yard, and I just I laugh every time. I can't help it. It's the funniest goddamn thing.
0: Now I'm trying to think of like other things this reminds me of, because like the John Waters connection, I think works especially polyester yeah heathers for sure i was also thinking of other people who are making movies around this time so like todd solon's um especially welcome to the dollhouse or maybe um alexander payne citizen ruth and election oh yeah there's like a meanness and like a artificiality to those movies that um that's very underplayed but like viciously funny in the similar way that this one is yeah But it's a little softer because it is playing with that um, kind of old-fashioned melodrama feel as well. It's a very strange movie. It's hard to pinpoint.
1: Yeah, it's only funny because it never blinks. You're playing chicken with it the whole time. And if it ever looked away or if it ever gave in a little bit and winked a little bit, then it wouldn't work if it didn't play it so seriously. It's only campy and fun because it so absurd but everyone is taking it so seriously
0: it does deflate the tires in the very last shot where she like actually starts having full conversations with him when they're they're walking off into the sunset if it had pulled that trigger earlier it would have been a much more miserable movie to sit through
1: yeah it has to happen in the last second
0: yeah because basically like the whole point of the movie is like her brain is like waking up for the first time Like, she has felt no pain. She has not been challenged in any way, either physically or, you know, socially. She's had, like, a really easy life uh, up until this point. And she's thinking for the first time and, like, doing things independently. And I guess part of that uh, experience is making huge mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, uh, I guess that's what the end means to me.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I can't. I think that this movie is hilarious, but I completely understand people. I understand why it didn't do well. I understand why nobody ever talks about it, including the people who were involved. I understand why um, these people never made another movie behind the scenes. You have to watch this with the right group of people, and you have you have to be on its level and have a very specific like sense of humor in order to really enjoy this one as much as we did. Otherwise, you're just going to be like, I can't tell if this movie is brave or offensive.
0: I kind of wonder what it did to Christina Ricci's career, because I remember seeing her in Yellow Jackets earlier this year, and she was very good in it. And I was thinking back to like when I last remembered her being around, and it was kind of this one and um, The Opposite of Sex are two movies I hadn't seen, but I always thought of this as like kind of the end of the line for her.
1: So there were a bunch of movies that she was involved in around this time, and I think all of them were pretty, eh. They just you know? didn't go anywhere. Well, Sleepy Hollow was, like, really big in 1999. Great film. Yeah, I would agree. But then nobody saw this. Nobody saw Prozac Nation. And then Monster, she was very overshadowed in that, but she's present in it. And then followed up immediately by, like, Cursed, that Wes Craven Werewolf I like movie that, movie, that movie, but saw. that's not
0: well loved. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I would say it would be the one-two punch of Penelope, where she's the big girl, and Black Snake Moan, both of which came out in 2006. Yeah. It was really the point where it was like, okay, nothing after that for a while. Where you look at stuff and she's like, oh, she's in that Lizzie Borden TV movie that no one saw. And then I guess maybe Yellow Jackets is bringing her back. But I love her. I wish she was in oh, much, yeah. many more things.
0: I mean, we grew up with her being like one of the coolest screen presences, I would say. Like, her and Winona Ryder were like, I almost want to say heroes to me as a kid. Like, they were like, yeah. coolest, like, outsider counterculture people on screen
1: that I can think of. I'm completely in agreement. I think that Wednesday Adams, her as Wednesday Adams, like, definitely did something to us. Yeah. But, like, you know, even. You know, I have a friend who, like Mermaids is one of her favorite movies, and she's she was just she hit the ground running from such a young age. Mermaids is a
0: perfect film,
1: yeah, i would I would agree
0: the director of this, I looked up his filmography earlier today, and I, I think this one definitely has a very measurable <laughs> effect in his career, where like he made Dead Man on Campus uh, before this.
1: Have you ever seen that?
0: I don't think so.
1: I really wanted to, though. I seem to remember seeing part of it on USA, (laughs) like maybe a year or two after it came out. But I would have been like 12 or 13 at that time. So it didn't stick, unfortunately. And I've tried to find it since then. Um, I guess probably I looked at this IMDb page the last time that I saw Pumpkin. and was like, (laughs) oh, there's a ton of people in this movie. Why wouldn't I know this one? But I remember maybe not being able to find it or something like that.
0: Maybe in the depths of YouTube somewhere. Yeah. Where you can watch Pumpkin in 10-minute chunks uh, with Spanish subtitles on YouTube. If You're morally against
1: Tubi for some reason. Oh, okay. I was going to say, is that how you did it? No, no. I watched it on
0: Tubi. Okay. (laughs) But uh, since then, he's only made one movie, and it was something I'd never heard of from a few years ago. And that was like a good 15-year gap after Pumpkin.
1: Yeah. This movie just didn't hit. (laughs) No. And if you look at the reviews are pretty scathing. Roger Ebert loved it. Yeah, he understood. <laughs> Roger Ebert, he understood this time. Um, <laughs> you could put this movie and Citizen Ruth in like a Roger Ebert understood more than anyone else like two pack.
0: Not a lot of horror movies in that column, but uh, he had his moments.
1: Yeah, he he understood when something was satirical, but nobody else did. Was is is a big thing for him, I think.
0: I thought this was a great recommendation. I I, I really enjoyed this. Um, it I'm so very glad. likely is in bad taste, but yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Like it, It's got the right point of view to thread that needle.
1: Yeah, I, I, Once again, I would say this movie, the things that make it not offensive are the things that make it, I, I guess, um, forgivable more. <laughs> this is a, probably a better way to describe it, is that it never blinks. It never treats the subject matter as anything less than sincere or serious. And it never mocks anybody but the society. Oh, we've got to talk about uh, about Carolyn's mom.
0: She's basically the mom from Heather's, right? No, or more I, more racist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say. I would say that Veronica's parents are out of touch. Those are the other than JD's father. Those are the only parents that we really see in Heather's. Or, and it's her mom. I, I think that her dad is just like, oh, why do I read these novels? Her <laughs> I think her mom delivers one of the most a line in the movie that has changed for me over the hundreds of times I've seen it in the past 25 years you know she she delivers a very interesting lecture about how most of the time when teenagers are complaining that they're they want to be treated like adults it's because they are being treated like adults and there's truth in that which is that you know when you are in your extremely neurochemically driven teenage years there are certain things that you think are really unfair that as you get older you come to realize that that's just life um not that life isn't unfair to teenagers it definitely is in many ways but
0: yeah in this movie the mom has nothing insightful to say and every time her daughter tries to have a real conversation uh she wants to just move on and like go back to like the bliss of being fabulously wealthy
1: yes she's the waspiest wasp
0: Yeah. I guess I was just thinking, like the the line deliveries are very similar. They they all have like kind of like a dreamlike head in the clouds way of talking. Oh yeah, but yeah, she does snap out of it just to, to um, talk about how she does not want her daughter to date Jewish people. <laughs> it's like the one time she like comes to like a concise point of view.
1: That's the that's the thing that I I think is her overarching motivation, and it tells us why Carolyn is the way that she is. Carolyn is not completely empty headed, or she's not dumb. But her head is empty because her whole life, when we see her childhood bedroom, and I was noticing a lot of like set design this time around because it was my second time. Her childhood bedroom, she has a shelf in her room, but it's not full of books. It's full of stuffed animals. Soft, kind, cushioning. Her entire life has just cushioned her because her clearly racist mother and presumably racist father, they're living in this like country club bubble where you know the first thing that we learn about her mother she calls her mom to be like oh i made it safely and she's like oh i was so worried because i hear they're letting in all types at Ugh. the college now so it's like immediately from the ground up you know exactly what kind of person her mother is and then carolyn immediately is like oh can't you shouldn't be here in my bedroom teehee and her mother has no problem with that she's just like okay i'm gonna go now like her mother doesn't care that her daughter is having like inappropriate, I don't know, I'm not going to say inappropriate, but to her, inappropriate sexual relations in her sorority house where men are not allowed, where she should presumably not, you know, quote unquote, be safe from that or whatever. So she's concerned about the all kinds of people. And then she has her horrible monologue about it's a very interesting and thorough depiction of like society not thorough maybe but it's her racism is social she's not she doesn't use the n-word or anything like that she's racist in the way that a lot of people in real life are racist where she's like oh i've heard about people um she never uses the word miscegenation she's like "Oh, i've heard about cultural differences that can cause mystery and miscommunication whenever someone dates someone from a different ethnicity she's couching it in this language of like oh it's just a little bit of a social difference but she's also clearly using like the racist watchdog language that you know we've seen as part of the alt-right pipeline
0: and she kind of needs to be that awful for the movie to work like everyone but pumpkin has to be like a huge monster (laughs) for the joke to land but yeah, she is one of the worst offenders, I think, in in the whole movie.
1: It shows you why, you know, Carolyn is the way that she is, and why she's never experienced pain. She's just had this rich, cushioning, entirely stuffed animal social environment, and now that she's pushed out of her comfort zone, it is her waking up for the first time. Uh, it kind of gives the lie to what the on-campus psychiatrist says, which is that he's like, "Oh, once you get yourself grounded in reality." the fog will lift but the actual experience that she's having is that the fog is already lifting and you know, i love the part where for the first time the fog is lifting and she sees ugliness in the world and what she walks around and sees her that was one of my biggest laughs it's so good it's and it has that sort of cross-fading walk away that you know it was so common in in films of the time to like filmically demonstrate some sort of shattering of the mind she's like oh my my insides have shattered like a broken mirror it's like damn girl this poetry class is really waking you up
0: what does she see she's just like fruit rotting in the garbage she's like a dead bird on the a ground dead
1: bird, yeah rats just very funny. out <laughs> they're yeah. not doing anything wrong they're just there they're rats
0: that was a very jerry blank moment to me as well also reminded me yeah. of society because like the first half of that movie before the shunt is basically that like biting into an apple and then a worm comes out and, uh, yeah. You know, just like seeing yeah. like ugly stuff for the first time at the edge of the suburban frame.
1: Yeah. Carolyn's parents definitely shunt. Oh, for sure. They love a good shunt. They shunt like nobody's business.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know what to promote for the next recording of this episode. I want to say it's going to be the Twee episode that I billboarded last time, but, um, these recordings have gotten kind of jumbled lately. It's just a busy time of year. So, Maybe we'll finally get Twee the next time you hear us. Maybe not.
1: We'll see what happens. Bye everybody. Happy holidays. Whatever holiday it happens to be. Pumpkin Day. Happy Stars of can feel you are. Stars of track feel you are. Stars of feel Yeah. Uh-huh.